As believers, we want to walk in God's ways, which includes celebrating what God celebrates. We often pray, Lord, teach me to hate what you hate and to love what you love. Break my heart for the things that break your heart and cause my heart to celebrate over the things that causes your heart to celebrate. So, before we come back and gather tonight, there is a New Year's Eve celebration here, a family game night. Hopefully you'll come back for that potluck, bring some food. We'll see the crazy people in New York, maybe, standing in the uh, negative degree weather. I, uh, I heard someone say it'll be so cold in New York that the uh, socialists will have to put their hands in their own pockets for a change. So, just, just saying. It's a little New Year's humor. All, all joking aside, though, let's, let's see what it is that causes God to celebrate because we'll see that it didn't necessarily cause the religious leaders of Israel to celebrate? How could they get something so wrong? They were so angry over something that God took joy over. As Christians, the attitude of the Jewish religious leaders, it should be shocking to us, and it is, because we understand that God saves sinners, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Yet it became the mistaken theology of the religious leaders that um, unless you clean up your act and become perfect, you're not going to heaven. Now certainly their theology was correct in the sense that heaven is a place of perfection. God cannot be around sin. But since we're all sinners, heaven would be empty. And so, they only had half the story and they filled in the blanks with human intuition and that's where we get ourselves in trouble. When we're talking about reality, especially the reality of spiritual things, we cannot fill in the blanks with our own human reason. We'll get it wrong every time. We'll get it wrong in such a way that we think it's beneficial to us and yet, as we're going to see, it was anything but beneficial for the religious leaders. It was, in fact, keeping them far from God and keeping others far from God as well. We know Jesus is God in human flesh. They didn't realize they had God standing in their very presence in the person of Jesus Christ. They were trying to lecture him on the things of God, and he came to correct their misperceptions, and he came to seek that which was lost and precious to God. These misperceptions are embedded in each of our hearts. So don't look at the Pharisees and scribes this morning and say, oh, they, um, they're so wrong. Boy, I would never do such a thing. These stories are given to us as an example as an example, it's for us to see a more obvious example. You know why? Because we're slow to learn. We're dim. You and I are. We blind ourselves. 
We need to see obvious examples in front of us and go, oh, look at how ugly that self-righteousness is. Well, the example is there for us to say, is that me? Am I like that? And so this morning we're going to see six human misperceptions about salvation that Jesus corrects. And really for the purpose of examining our own hearts and seeing where we might have some of these misperceptions as well. If we want to celebrate as God celebrates, then we need to understand the world the way he understands it. And he understands the world correctly. So let's start in Luke 15, verse 1, which sets up a trio of parables. We're only going to look at two of the parables. The third parable is known as the parable of the prodigal son, and we'll save that for next week. There's your your teaser. Come on back for the parable of the prodigal son. We call the first of the three parables the parable of the lost sheep, and then there's the parable of the lost coin, And we really should call the third parable the parable of the lost son, only there's two lost sons. The focus happens to be on one of them. But what sets up this trio of parables is this misperception the Pharisees and scribe have. They see Jesus working miracles, teaching God's truth, living as a holy man and as a prophet, but they're confused because if he really was a holy man of God, he would not be hanging out with sinners. He would not be hanging out with sinners. He'd be hanging out with the righteous people, namely the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Instead, he is spending his time with Tax collectors, we even saw them with prostitutes, and just this basket term, sinners. And so there's this disconnect, or we would say they don't have a category. They don't have a category for this. They can't reconcile this in their minds. How could this holy man eat with sinners? So Luke 15.1 starts with this line. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. This is the first time maybe these people have been allowed near anyone who considered himself a holy man. I love how tax collector gets its own category. There's the rank and file sinners and then there's the tax collectors. And... Even though this isn't one of the first misperceptions, I I did want to start here and say, I would have to say, knowing human nature the way I know it, all of us have some category of people in our mind that is the tax collector. We'll be gracious and merciful and we'll go a long way with just about anyone, but there's got to be somebody in your life where you draw the line. Maybe it's, Um, another denomination. Maybe it's um, Muslims. Maybe it's a certain kind of felon in prison, a particular crime that is heinous. And you know God is merciful 
and he's long-suffering, and he's abounding in steadfast love, but no way is he going to forgive that person. And therefore, I don't have to open up my heart to praying and hoping this person will come to salvation. So, who's the tax collector in your life? Maybe that's a good place to start 2018 with. Whoever it is, they're a sinner just like you. And when we look at sin on the horizontal level, then we start to say, well, some sinners are worse than other sinners. And some sinners are more deserving of God's grace. And it's really only a short path before you get to some people don't deserve salvation at all, and I do deserve salvation. That word deserve does not belong anywhere near the word grace. They're antithetical. You can't have grace if you've earned something. So these folks believed that they had earned God's salvation. They had done enough works. They're keeping the law, plus all the works they added to the law for good measure. And look at these people over here. They are not worthy to be with God. Salvation may not have even been in their vocabulary. It's not so much that they were saved. It was that they earned their way back to God. Well, that leaves out all of these people. It gives them no hope. No hope. If you have to be perfect and keep God's law perfectly, then there's no hope for the rank-and-file sinners like us. And so God came down in the person of Jesus Christ to set the record straight and also to seek lost sinners. Misperception number one, then. I guess we kind of already did one, but here's officially number one. Let's see if I can get that to advance. There we go. Misperception number one is that God permanently or always separates himself from sinners. Now, let me be absolutely clear here. God does always separate himself from sin. And you can't have a sin without a sinner. Sin's not an abstract concept. It takes another moral agent to commit sin. The misperception, though, is that God permanently separates himself from the sinner until the sinner is no longer a sinner. And then he'll allow him back into his presence. Now, let me be absolutely sober-mindedly clear that for those who refuse to repent and harden their heart to the gospel, they will be sadly, permanently separated from God for eternity. But the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, it says, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Remember, eating is one of the most intimate things you could do with someone else in that culture, to break bread together as we did around the Lord's table this morning. I love this word grumble in the Greek. It's, a, it's an onomatopoeia, uh, onomatopoeia word where 
the word sounds like the actual sound it makes. There's a bunch of repeating letters in this word in the Greek, so it's kind of a blah, 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 you know. They're constantly grumbling under the, look, this guy again, this Jesus, what is, what is he doing again with the, it's just driving them nuts. It's absolutely infuriating. And you probably have something in your life that's where someone else does something that just, just gets under your skin. And you're like, somebody's got to do something about this because this is just wrong. And why isn't he doing something about it? He's supposed to be this holy man of God. Doesn't he know who he's eating with and what they're guilty of? But Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Seek and to save. Pursue. You have to be near to save. Let's be honest with each other. We do want to see sinners saved, but... Often we want to save from a distance. Hey, we're, we're, we're going down to Skid Row to minister to the lost. Well, here's some money. Why don't you talk to them for me? It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. We don't want to get dirty. We don't want to be defiled. We don't want to see the wretchedness of humanity. Now, a little caveat here. God tells us to be separate from the world, so how do we reconcile these things? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, just before we get to chapter 11, where we get the instructions for the Lord's Supper, Paul says to the church at Corinth about a man who was living in an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law, And the church, thinking it was being loving and merciful and gracious, was letting it happen. See how progressive we are? See how godly and uh, welcoming? And we're not going to be like those Pharisees. Well, this is wrong as well. And Paul says, what are you doing? Kick that guy out of the church. For a reason, for a purpose. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's always about restoration. It's always about restoration, but if we turn a blind eye to one another's sin, then we falsely think there's no need for restoration because what needs restoring? I'm good. In fact, Paul says in Romans, right? Should I keep sinning that grace may abound even more? May it never be. Yes, in one sense, the uglier our life was before salvation, the more glory God gets. But we don't go and sin on purpose so that we can tell people about how gracious God is. And folks, you don't have to go out and sin on purpose to magnify God's grace. You're already sinning. You're already sinning. And it was the ones who were keeping their sins private, the Pharisees, scribes, that Jesus saved the harshest rebuke for. They had deceived themselves. They had fooled themselves. They were hypocrites. They preached one thing and lived 
differently in their private life. So the misperception then is that somehow God um, distances himself from sinners and, and he's waiting really far away and if they'll just clean up their act, maybe, just maybe, I might let you near. Well, here's the ultimate problem with, with that view and that leads us to misperception number two. That God waits for the lost to come to him If God waited for the lost to come to him, nobody would come. Oh, they would try to come in self-righteousness. They would do lots of religious-looking things. The world's filled with religious people doing all kinds of religious things, saying no to this, giving that, memorizing this, going through this ritual, that ritual, keeping score. But imagine if that's how a loved one in your life treated your relationship. Would you say they were near? What if you had a child that was a great rule keeper, but you knew their heart was far from yours? Careful how you answer this next question. Would you rather have a child who keeps all the rules that you give them, but their heart is far from you, or a child who breaks some of the rules, but trusts your heart and is sorry for what they do and, and ask forgiveness. I say be careful because <laughs> you may be going through something really hard right now with your kids. And right now you will take follows all the rules. I don't care if their heart's far from me. Right? We want the third option, right? Which is they keep all the rules and their heart is close to ours. And in Christ, in glory, in heaven, that's exactly the way our relationship will be with God. But it's not there yet. It's not there yet. God draws close to us and didn't wait for us to draw close to him first. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. We get that. Everyone is a sinner. But it goes on to say, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God, which kind of blows the whole seeker movement from the 80s out of the water. Now, as a church, we try to be winsome and welcoming to the lost. But don't assume anyone is seeking after God. I'll give you a personal example. I went back to church not hungry for God. I went because it just sounded like a good idea because that's what adults do. I was raised in a church. My wife was raised in a church. Grown-ups who are married and have children go to church. They don't go to happy hour anymore. That's, that's for reckless youth. It's not for anybody. See our misperception? So I said, find a giant church where we can hide in the back that had comfortable pews because I had a bad lower back. These chairs are, ah, they're comfortable. I'm not sure they would have done it for me. I was not seeking after God. Oh, you went back to church and maybe the people in the church saw this young couple come in and say, oh, look, they're hungry for God. Now, I'm not really sure 
why we were there. But now I know God was drawing us. He was seeking after us. I was trying to get lost in the back. Now I'm preaching. How did this happen? And many of you have a similar testimony. And even if your testimony is the one where, like, I grew up in a church and never really got in a lot of trouble, I've always kind of been a good person, you know you were lost. You know you were lost. And I love to hear from people who have that kind of testimony that go, oh, no, I, I, was, I was playing a game. I was, you know... I looked one way to everybody in church, but in my heart, I was rebellious. He told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Right? Parables take earthly examples of things that help us to understand spiritual things. What is going on in the spiritual realm? Jesus, let us know because you are from the spiritual realm. You know God's heart. We don't know God's heart. We think we know God's heart because we're foolish, because we're self-absorbed, and we think that the way we see the world and interpret the world must be the way God sees the world and interprets the world, and we get it wrong. We need God to reveal to us what's really going on in our world and what God is really like. The sheep ain't coming back on his own. The sheep is dumb and stubborn. And how humbling that God would use a sheep as a picture of us. The sheep left the pasture. What makes you think he's coming back? He's going to wander around and not even know he's in trouble. Not even know he's in danger. Not even know he's lost. We all like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53. And we're precious to the shepherd. And so he leaves the 99 in the pasture and goes after the one. God does the seeking. Paul understood that because he thought he was zealous for God and he was far from God. And God sought him on the road to Damascus. And Physically blinded him to show him he was spiritually blind. Then he opened his spiritual eyes first and then opened his physical eyes. And Paul writes in Ephesians 2, We were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead people don't get up and seek after God. They're dead. They don't move. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. Before you're regenerated by God, all you are is the natural man. You don't understand the things of the Spirit. You don't even understand you're lost. You're just unhappy and unsatisfied. And you think it's because you just don't have the right things in the world. Misperception number three. 
God waits for sinners to clean up before he embraces them. See, this would have made more sense maybe to the Pharisees and the scribes. Okay, God does save sinners, but he ain't going to be around them until they take a shower or a bath. Luke 15, 5, Jesus goes on in the parable, and when he has found it, the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Not on a long leash because it's dirty and muddy and maybe has manure on it, or maybe it's, it's got caked blood on it because it's, it's been attacked. You know where this parable eventually leads to the prodigal son, and he was rolling around in the pigsty, Right? little teaser trailer here, like at the movies. And he says, I will go home and I will clean up my act and I will be like one of my father's servants. And when the father sees him a long way off, he runs to the son and embraces him and showers him with kisses, even though he smells like pig poop. Yes, that is going to be recorded. <laughs> it, it's alliteration. It's, it's yeah. That'll preach. Look, you have to understand this, and the Bible reveals this to us. When we put our faith in Christ, we are immediately, instantaneously justified, declared righteous. Not because we're righteous. We're still filthy, rotten sinners. But because Jesus' righteous record has been imputed to our account. That's why God can treat us as righteous. But we still reek. And in our sanctification, God works with us to clean us up, to sanctify. Sanctify means to clean, to separate. But it's not until the final stage of our salvation, our glorification, that we are now without sin. So does God wait until glorification to embrace us? You know the answer is no, because you love God's embrace You have felt God's embrace, have you not? Say amen if you felt God's embrace. Say it louder. Are you sure he's embraced you? Amen. Amen. Are you clean? No. If you had lost your child and you thought they were lost for good and then you found them, would would you say, could you wash them down and hose them down first? No. Of course not. Maybe some people, (laughs) but these people don't represent God. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. We couldn't clean up our act. Oh, we could clean ourselves up a little bit morally, but the standard for heaven is perfection. Misperception number four, then. And at this point, I imagine that the Pharisees and the scribes are just besides themselves with disgust. First of all, they have no respect for shepherds. And here, Jesus purposefully picks an example of someone in their culture that they can't stand and have no respect for. And he says, hey, imagine you're a shepherd Uh, Why would he do that? That's the last person in the 
world, they would want to put themselves in the sandals of a shepherd. Remember, parables were not designed to make the truth more accessible to those who had hardened hearts. It did the opposite. It was a form of judgment. So Jesus purposefully picked an example of someone and said, hey, imagine you're a shepherd. How dare you? That's an insult. I would die before I'd become a shepherd. We have, we have a high view of shepherding because Jesus is the good shepherd. But in this culture, shepherding was what you did if you couldn't do anything else. And you were separated from society. And you had to live out in the fields and far away from people. And you were dirty and smelly because you were with the animals all the time. Which makes it so beautiful that the first people that got to hear the good news of Jesus' birth were shepherds. Misperception number four, God is embarrassed by his wayward children. God is embarrassed by his wayward children. God's pride is not on the line. He is not a human being like we are. We're so insecure and we care so much about what people think about us that if we had wayward children, yes, we would be grieved that they're wayward, but our pride gets in the way and we're like, there's such an embarrassment to me in the family. Such an embarrassment. God isn't worried about his reputation. Nobody can bring a word against him. Who's going to sit in judgment of God? Who's going to be his counselor? Who's going to be his teacher? Now, let me balance that with this. We should care about God's reputation in the world. We should want to live the Christian life such that it brings glory and honor to Christ. We don't want to bring reproach on his name. But his name is the name above every name. Mud don't stick to his name. And this is an important point because I have found in my counseling that a lot of people... Maybe were raised in a family where they were not unconditionally loved by their parents. They knew that they had to perform. Their parents were never happy with them. They were scolded and scorned and rebuked often. They had to walk on eggshells because they were afraid anything I do is going to be an embarrassment to my parents. And now they think God is the same way. And they know they're saved, but like just barely. And if I mess up, I'll lose it. Or God is just... I know I'm saved, but he's just not happy with me. I hear this a lot, especially from women coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. Very, very common. God is God, and I know I'm saved, but it's really, he wish I would just go stay over there in the corner. Sure, you can be in heaven, but could you, could you not be you? And and they they come in for counseling and they're 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 just broken and bruised and God loves you. Yeah, but I'm not very impressive. That's right. <laughs> I'm not here to boost your self esteem. None of us are that impressive compared to God. All this 
teaching in our culture that we're all unique and we're special and we're heroes in our own right and every snowflake is different. Well, the problem with snowflakes is they melt easily, people. God is not embarrassed by his wayward children. And in our parenting class, we teach people, look, don't be in shock and awe when your kids sin. They're sinners. What kind of message are you sending to your kids if you're like, oh, I can't believe you would do such a thing as if you've never done such a thing. I know, but I didn't get the good teaching you're getting. I didn't, you're, I didn't get the good parenting you benefit from every day. So you were supposed to bypass the whole sin track. Where's the gospel there? And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Come, join me in public humiliation of my lost sheep. No, that's not what it says. It says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Let's have a party, because this sheep is precious to me. You know why you're precious to God? Because you're made in his image. You're made in his image. You're precious to him. And in Christ, you're one of his children. You're part of the family. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. He's not saying he's the worst sinner of all time. He's just saying, I'm people's exhibit A. Paul needs to look no further than the mirror to find a sinner. You too, me too. I'm the foremost of sinners. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. What's he saying there? The fact that God didn't wait to save people who cleaned up their act is done for a purpose. It's to be an example to the world of look at our amazing, merciful God. Look at his amazing grace if he would love a person like that. Like me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It gives glory to God. He's not embarrassed. I should be embarrassed by my sin. But God's not like, well, you can be in my family, just sit at the doorstep. You ain't sitting at the table. That is not at all what God is like. Look who God called to be his apostles. Matthew, a tax collector. A bunch of fishermen who wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. Paul, a persecutor of Christians. These are people who are precious to God. And you are precious to God, especially in Christ Jesus. Misperception number five then I love this one. Only the sheep that have left the pen are lost. Only the sheep that have left the pen are lost. It's easy to look in our culture and see the lost sheep. But folks, look around you. There's lost sheep here. I'm not lost salvifically. I'm lost in the sense that I go astray still, don't you? I'm like, I keep my eyes on the shepherd. I keep my eyes on the, oh, look at that weed. 
don't eat that. I've told you not to eat that. It's going to make you sick. But it looks so good. We get so distracted. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Do you hear the sarcasm? This is holy sarcasm from our Lord. There is no such thing as the 99 sheep who don't need repentance. All sheep go astray. We're just well corralled here in the church. And that's good. That's a gift from God. The church is a place of safety and blessing. It should be. Where we can shepherd one another with the scriptures and help one another to not go astray. When we see people start to stray, we can go after them and bring them back. And if they don't want to come back, then like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, send them out for a while. Out of love. And pursue them outside the church. Still pursue them, but pursue them outside the church because if you stay inside the church and you get all the blessings of the church while you're in active sin you're never going to repent there are only two kinds of people in the world those that are sinners and those that are in denial it's it's as simple as that But the Pharisees thought they were not lost, and yet they were the most lost of all. Listen, the most lost people in this world are the people who think they're not lost. I love having good theological discipleship conversations with people. They, I disciple them, they disciple me. I was just talking to a young man about this the other day, and I was telling him, hey, when you go out and you make disciples you're going to find that that one person that is the hardest to talk to is the one who thinks none of this applies to them. And really, you can talk to your blue in the face. It's just not going to go anywhere. But when you sit down with someone who's like, I need to learn, you need to learn, God's here to teach us, let's learn together. You help me learn, I'll help you learn. Beautiful, beautiful friendship there. Beautiful discipleship relationship. The final misperception then is that some people are more valuable to God than others. Some people are more valuable to God than others. Jesus shifts parables here and not to insult you ladies, but in this culture Jesus just went from insult them a little bit by saying imagine you're a shepherd to insulting them a lot by saying now imagine you're a woman women were not held in high esteem especially by the Pharisees and the scribes or what woman if she has ten silver coins and loses one they'd be thinking who gave her all these coins that's your first mistake oh she lost one of course she did now, we get the impression from the, from the parable but that this woman is single. She's probably a widow. The, these ten coins, is, this is her net worth. Each one of these coins is, is a denarius. So it, it's a substantial amount of money. Remember, the denarius is what Jesus gave the day laborers, which was very, very 
generous. It was more than what a day laborer would normally be given. So she has 10 of these denarii. She lost one. Imagine if you lost 10% of your net worth today. You'd be freaking out. I guess that happened like eight years ago when the stock market crashed, huh? But what if your net worth was in these 10 coins and you lost a coin? The, The whole idea here is that We're precious to God. The sheep was precious to the shepherd. The coin is precious to the woman. There's worth. There's value. And so, why wouldn't you go and look for something that has value to you? That's the whole point of the parable. We have value to God. And when He finds us, He celebrates. Just like you would if you lost something that was valuable to you. And then you found it. And you had told everybody, I lost one of my sheep. I lost one of my coins. And she lights a lamp and sweeps the house and searches carefully until she finds it. It's this whole picture of, why do you receive sinners? Because I'm actively seeking sinners, Jesus says. God actively seeks sinners. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Let's have a party. She might even use the coin to throw the party. That's how excited she is. The Pharisees and scribes had convinced themselves that they were more valuable to God than the rank and file. When we start to compare ourselves horizontally to others, one of two things happens. Either we say, woe is me, I'll never amount to anything, and yeah, maybe I'm saved, but I'll never amount to anything in the kingdom, and God doesn't want to use me to do anything in the kingdom. Or we hit the other extreme, which is, I'm the MVP of the kingdom. I compared myself to others, and... Yeah, I know I was saved by grace, but it only took this much grace. I was pretty much there. God just kind of nudged me over the top. Both views are wrong. When we focus on ourselves, we cultivate pride. When we look at Christ, we cultivate humility. Paul says in Philippians 2, consider others more important than yourselves. Consider others more important than yourselves. Be like Christ, who even though being in the form of the God did not equate um, God as a thing to be grasped. He, he willingly put aside some of his divine attributes, his divine prerogative, when he took on human flesh. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that after he died on the cross, He was exalted to the highest place and given the name above every name. This is our example. Consider this then. If Jesus is telling these parables to them to show them their misperceptions about God, then in essence, Jesus is saying, this is what God is like. God is like a shepherd. God is like this woman. And that would have been just too much for these guys to take. Too much for them to take. God is not like a shepherd and he's certainly not like a woman. And 
all it did was use their own pride and their own hatred and their own self-righteousness to blind them even further. Jesus purposely picking these examples to further them in their blindness. But for us who've been saved and our eyes have been opened, these parables give us a wonderful view into the heart of God that God actively seeks out lost sheep and lost coins and celebrates when he finds them. We have much to celebrate this morning. These baptisms. We have much to celebrate in your own salvation. So then, why does Jesus receive sinners? That was their question. Why do you, receive, why do you hang out with sinners? In the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You want to start a party in heaven? Repent. And I'm not just talking about salvifically in your justification. Every time you choose to turn from sin each day, you're sparking a party in heaven. How how excited is it for you when one of your children finally gets something that you've been trying to teach them? Yes, they're home. They got it. They own it now. It's moved from here to the heart. What a celebration. And you go and you tell your friends, you go to your small group and you say, guess what my, my kids did. I got to hear uh, uh, parents from church a couple of weeks ago. My daughter placed her faith in Jesus Christ. They are celebrating. Rightly. Why does Jesus receive sinners? Because God is merciful, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, and heaven celebrates when something that is precious to God was lost, but now is found. Therefore, we should acknowledge our lostness and celebrate our foundness and dedicate our lives to joining God's search and rescue mission. You want to be on the party planning committee in God's kingdom? Go And search for lost sinners like our Lord does and show them the way home. Father, thank you for showing us the way home, for sending people into our lives, whether it was a sermon or a Sunday school teacher or something on the radio. Lord, you work in so many ways, but it's always your word and your spirit that saves. May we be excited about the things you're excited about And may we make 2018 a year where we actively, intentionally, and diligently seek the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.